0: Welcome to The Britpop Pop Show and it is a massive week this week as we have part one of our interview with Simon Fowler of Ocean Colour Scene and Daniel Rachel talking about their brand new book. So let's kick the show off before we move into the interview with a bit of Ocean Colour Scene and it's a beautiful thing. Welcome to the Britpop Show. And if it's okay with you, just so everybody knows who you are, if you could just explain who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, I'm Simon Fowler. I'm the singer with um, Ocean Colosseum. And um, I have just co authored a book, kind of, with my friend of many, many years, Mr. Daniel Rachel.
2: And I am Daniel Rachel. No, Um, you're not. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, I've also co authored a book with my friend. Anyways, he was called Simon Fowler, and uh, when I, uh, and I've done that because I am
0: an author. I'd like to set the scene, if, if I may, and talk about what you guys have done historically. Daniel, I know you've done some books that our readers will be very interested in, and we'd we'll, we'll like to talk about that. But if we can start with Simon. Simon, can you tell us how the, how the band started, how Ocean Colour Scene started?
1: Well, we started in October 1989. We sort of spent the first seven years kind of learning how to do it, really. We had a a flirtation with uh, record labels and albums, including working with the wonderful Jimmy Miller. But basically, we broke in the beginning of 96, um, thanks to a a record called The Riverboat Song, which was featured on a a very popular TV show at the time called uh, TFI Friday, which was hosted by Chris Evans. And that really launched us onto, well, 25 years plus of touring and making albums and playing to people all over the world.
0: But you're being a bit modest there, aren't you? Weren't you signed to a record label after about three months of, of joining?
1: Yes, yes, we were. Yeah, uh, that was. We were kind of set up already, knowing that in mind. That was a local state, uh, local um, label in Birmingham, uh, run by a guy called John Mustin, who was known for managing Alice Moye and, Moyet and uh, Finding Cannibals. Set up Go Feet Records, which the uh, the um, the beats were on and he was like Mr Birmingham really um but it didn't really come to a great
0: deal i read somewhere that they tried to remix your first album so it was a bit manchester which isn't really your your scene at all
1: oh it was re- it was re-recorded about three times
0: it, yeah it,
1: it was uh, by the time by the time that uh, it had come out everyone was listening to nirvana so <laughs> it was um it, it all came to nothing really um Yeah, it came to nothing. The first album didn't sell, didn't chart, I don't think.
0: People always talk about Nirvana and, and killing British music, but Nirvana might well have been, in, on some stage, the, the birth of rip pop. What do you think to that, Daniel? Uh,
2: I, think, I think the idea of uh, one band being able to kill British music is, is kind of journalist talk, really. I don't think that was the case. You know, there was plenty of British music before, during and after. But uh, there was... Uh, the, you know, Kurt Cobain died, and within weeks, obviously, Blur and Oasis released their first records. And uh, so, the, so the timeline fits nicely. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I I wasn't particularly into grunge I I always liked the Pixies. In fact, Simon and I went to see the Pixies. Do you remember
1: the, mm. the Irish? Yeah, one of the greatest gigs I've ever seen. That was. I saw them. I still wasn't. I not with you, and I saw them at Burberry's. But they you support, Burberry's they still... supported the throwing muses. Oh, wow, what a them Yeah, I know. I wouldn't want to be in the throwing muses after the Pixies going on. They were amazing. They're truly one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. Oh, it? Sport? Yes, yes. It was I'm doing that one of these things, what they call flip flop tour, yeah. where they swap over headline. Um, and that night, the Throne Muses were headlining. And I thought, oh, God, woe betide you. Man.
2: Yeah, well, we, I saw them with you at the Iris Center, I remember. And that was just fantastic. So when I first heard Nirvana, I thought they were ripping off the Pixies. I think that the Pixies were Stam. an enormous influence on Nirvana. And so
1: I think it was probably um, Mudhoney. I think they were before, Nirvana, Dinosaur Jr. Dinosaur
2: Jr. Yeah, Damon yeah. was into all of that. Damon mm-hmm. They They were they were they were great bands.
0: Which actually moves me on to one of my questions. Um, so, what's the what's the favourite your favourite ever gig that you've been to or done?
1: Ooh, that's a tricky one. Well, I've mean, I already said the Pixies.
2: Um... I know, one extraordinary one I, that we that both of us went to on different nights, and uh, and and uh, I think Simon's story is best than mine. But the night I saw you too at uh, the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham. And I, I wasn't a fan of U2 at that point. And I, and I couldn't believe that a four-piece band could create that kind of a sound. They were utterly extraordinary. What tour was it? Uh, it was kind of Joshua Tree going into Rattle and it Hum. It was and
1: Hum, that tour, Dan. I saw them. Um, I was a journalist at the time on the Solihull News, so I used to get free tickets to go and review the gigs. And again, I wasn't particularly a U2 fan. But the, the, uh, the um, what was it called then, the NEC... Yeah, the NEC wasn't it? Was notoriously difficult to to get a really good atmosphere. And I saw Neil Young there, and it was it wasn't great.
2: You yeah, know what you told me, Son, I don't remember. Didn't, didn't Bono ask somebody if there was a band in the audience, and he got them on stage? I don't remember that.
1: <laughs> I probably did tell you. I don't remember a great deal.
2: You told me that Bono. I, I, said, no, I don't. I don't. Remember I don't. that came about, and they got a band on stage, and that, and you two gave them the. Their their guitars. And they did a song. Duke Midset. <laughs> <laughs> I think right, I must oh, be thinking, okay. somebody else must have told you that. I can't remember that.
1: <laughs>
0: it's a good story. But, but so what, what I, I
1: remember is that it was like a football. The atmosphere was like a football stadium. Chickalas yeah. everywhere. Um, I'd never, ever seen that. At, uh, well, we had seen
2: them in the bar, hadn't we? They were like, that was like a football, going to a football match,
1: wasn't it? Who was? The alarm. I don't really remember that very much. <laughs> so, I do remember <laughs> going to see the alarm, but I, I don't remember it particularly well.
2: We saw him at Nottingham Rock City, and uh, I was really into them at the time. And you and I remember coming out saying, what did you think? And you said it was like being at a football match and <laughs> kind of doing <laughs> a Robitchard team.
0: what about support act? Who's your favourite act that has supported you?
1: Well, Coldplay must come pretty high on the list. They supported us at the Astoria. I don't think I actually saw them,
2: but yeah, they supported us.
0: I saw them supporting Muse at the Kentish Town Forum the week that they released Yellow. And that was a good gig.
2: Muse supported Ocean Colours in the same week. It was that five night stand, wasn't it, at the Astoria? Muse
0: did.
2: Yeah, Muse did it one night, Coldplay did it. Did they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right, blimey O'Reilly. Blimey, Muse and Coldplay, there'd be nothing without me, you know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that uh, only a couple of years ago, Simon, when, when Paul came and uh, supported you, did an acoustic opening, and he was wearing monkey boot, a sky blue Harrington jacket, and I remember turning to you and saying, look at Paul, he looks like he's a jam fan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Paul Paul supported us. I mean, that was a good gig that we did at the Albert Hall. Oasis went on first, then Weller, then us. Well, when I say Oasis, it was Noel and Liam. And then we all got up at the end. I think P.P. Arnold was there as well, as was the real people. Um, We were all on stage together. Uh, That that was quite
0: a moment. Well, let's talk about Weller. you went on tour with him in '93, didn't you? How did that come about?
1: We've started to record the first album then at Solid Bond, and uh, just kind of hit it off with him, and I know that he liked one of our songs.: Which um, one? He liked a song called "Sway," which okay. is off the first it's one of our first singles. and um, him and him and Steve became really good friends. I mean, Steve still plays with Paul. Steve's played with Paul now for nearly 30 years. How terrifying is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nearly 30 years. So Paul was sort of like our fifth beetle. really. He, he gave us sort of faith in that what we were doing wasn't sort of a really good hobby.
0: Yeah. And presumably he was instrumental in you getting signed to MCA. No. Oh,
1: well, well, possibly. Yeah. He, the, the guy came down. I think this is a bit of a clever, clever move by Chris Craddock. This was he invited the guy from MCA, Johnny Walsh, down. To our studio, knowing that Paul was there playing on a few tracks, so that that may well have influenced the way that Johnny saw the situation. But uh, it was Johnny Walsh who signed us. We were we were originally going to sign for a company called Pony Canyon, which was for Japan only. Press up fifteen thousand copies of Mosey Shoals, and that was going to be it. Unfortunately, that fell through. And uh, Johnny Walsh came to the rescue and uh, signed us up. And within the, the album went in number two in the charts, stayed in, in, you know, around that period, around that sort of number for about six months, sold about 1.3 million copies. So we just didn't see any of that coming at all.
0: And what was that like when, when what was the what was your craziest story from that time? And you're just like, we did not expect this. It was all crazy really. It was all as you imagine. I can't imagine. Stay it. staying
1: up late every night, all the, all the stuff that bands do.
0: Daniel, what were you doing in 96 when well, these guys they, were blowing up? I were
2: living together at that point. Um, we had a flat in uh, Moseley and Steve was above us. And uh, I was actually trying to get my own band off the ground, Rachel's Basement. So we, we supported them quite a few times in 96. But it was really exciting because Simon and I had known each other since we were kids. And to see that success happen to Simon, but also to Steve and Damon, who i had been at school with, was really really exciting because it, uh, in the eight, in the mid 80s when we were all in different bands it was it, uh, there was always a kind of i always thought <clears throat> there was no doubt that these three people would make it there was that sense and uh and the drive it just it was almost unquestionable really and so when it didn't happen in, with that first album it just felt like that they were ahead and the record company or the music industry was behind and by 96 it had a uh, Flip flopped as some said earlier. So, Ocean Color Scene were ahead and the music press. Would be well, hard. Oasis,
1: what, what happened, what Oasis did, they sort of made it okay to like the Beatles, which uh, it sounds absurd to say this now, but it's true. When we were always uh, big Beatles, Stones fans, that type of music, and you always used to have to almost qualify it. the press oh yeah but we also do like see as our year zero was probably 63 with the beatles whereas most journalists year zero was 76 with the pistols and the clash And I think we were sort of looked as, as dinosaurs. In fact, we were looked as dinosaurs. For, for we've always been looked as dinosaurs. You know, even when we were very very popular in the nineties, we, we were we were not liked by the by the majority of the press.
2: No, well, they loved you when you used to wear Brett on tops, and it was yesterday today in and sway. And I always sensed there was some kind of betrayal that the 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 sent that the, the press found. That they you were the darlings then as as the style of band in 91 90 and then when you reemerged as a completely different looking band and sounding band they weren't that, they, mm. that they, they didn't they didn't buy it anymore did they it was the same people
1: yeah yeah i don't know i don't know no they they they, they, they didn't like us
0: when you wrote it when you wrote Mosley shoals did you know how good it was
1: yeah, we, I, I knew, you see, we see, had, we had sort of concocted that over probably three or four years. So we had recorded dozens and dozens of songs, um, a lot of which ended up as B-sides and on the B-sides album and later B-sides. So most of them we used, but we had got a hell of a lot of songs to choose from. Um, and yeah, I, I, did, I did know that all, I, I really liked all of the songs. And I guess that's all I can say, really, isn't it? Yeah.
0: I, remember, I, I know he's nothing to do with genre, but I remember Prince, somebody asking Prince about uh, one of his recent albums and saying, oh, your recent albums have been a bit substandard. And he was like, what do you mean by substandard? He said, well, that shirt you're wearing, is that a substandard shirt? And the guy and in the interviewer was like, well, I quite like it. And he said, right, now we're getting somewhere. Now you're starting to get it. <laughs> you know, The stuff I've recently released, I like it. If other people like it, that's fine. But I like yeah. it, so I'm releasing it. That's Just, all you can do, really. That's what's do.
2: interesting, I think, is that when they when they left Fontana, that the band spent three years in in a studio in, in King's Heath, Bob Lamb's studio, the guy who produced UB40, and then they moved to the studio that became generically known as Moses Schultz And as a band that were at the bottom and had no traction with anybody or anything they were forced to write new material and record it themselves and they kind of closed in on themselves as a four piece and just wrote and recorded and those demos from that period uh, are, are, were really really exciting pieces of music and then they slowly began to gig this is all leading up to them being signed to, to 94 95 and early 96 and 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 it just it was so obvious that these songs were going, to, were going to become really popular and big because of the reaction to anybody who heard them or heard them live. It was a really exciting time, but it's very much where the, um, the strength of the band, I think, really uh, is formed in, the, in, that, in that three-year period. Uh,
1: Steve, in particular, kind of learnt how to put records together. Because when you're, when you're, not, when you're rehearsing to simply play at the local pub, and you're a four-piece band. You inevitably play four-piece music, and you know you've got your, you've got all the, the obvious our obvious influences with the Beatles, the Buzzcocks, um, the Velvet Underground. So you kind of do that rhythm guitar, lead guitar, bass, and, and drums. Also, Steve became a much better musician. until how to play the piano. That was quite an important thing, I guess, and. Um, so we used to construct songs as records instead of just, you know, blaring along with me playing a, uh, a Strat sounding a bit tinny, to be quite honest. It, it, I'm not the best electric guitar player around, but that's how you used to play live to
0: your pals. So but so what was the songwriting process and how did it change?
1: Well, what? I would to write the songs on an acoustic guitar into a tape player. And then I would take them along to the studio every day, basically, so that we'd have something to do. And uh, so we'd often, I would record them, let everyone hear them, and then we'd start again, maybe with a piano or a, an organ, um, with a click track, which I can't play to. So inevitably, Steve would normally play the guitar parts, and, and sort of build it up like that, really, and build it up from the song. The, the melody, you know, and the words, and then build the music up. So it wasn't. So and I think that's why that, that our songs at that point, they don't all, there's no real signature sound. I think that people think that the signature sound is Riverboat. Well, it isn't. It's, there's as many folky and um, load, loads of influences, but I don't think Riverboat is our signature sound. It's one of our signature songs, I guess. It'll be on our grave.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's the one that, I mean, TFI used it. What, what What's your thoughts on TFI now, looking back 25 years? It was wonderful. You,
1: yeah. It was wonderful. I used to go down to TFI when we weren't on it. I used to live in uh, near Richmond. So I used to go over to Hammersmith uh, on a Friday just to hang out with, with Chris and uh, Danny Baker. <laughs>
0: the Britpop show and Daniel I'm going to ask you this question because you're the you're the most qualified to to answer this question before we move on to Simon do you consider Ocean Colour Scene to be Britpop because one of the things one of the big arguments we always have on every time I play anything on the show is is it Britpop and the definition of Britpop is far and wide but do you think Ocean Colour Scene a Britpop?
2: Well the thing is that historically then Ocean Colour Scene definitely not a Britpop band but Britpop as a meaning has 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 changed over the years and retrospectively, Britpop is now used f- as a generic term for guitar bands that were British and, and making music in the mid mid nineties. But uh, you know, when Brit originally, what was Britpop was called new, the new modern new mod, and uh, or, and uh, <clears throat> like Oasis were labelled as that. And there were all kinds of different definitions, and it was all you know. It became apparent after a while what it was, and there was um. You know, I think it was more that kind of staccato guitar line that you find bands like Sleeper and Elastica and Blur. Uh, there's there, there's a, bit, there is a there's a certain sound and Ocean Colour Scene didn't have that. But Ocean Colour Scene were more like what Paul Weller was doing, a more Oasis and had a more rock tradition. And because they were older for a start, I mean, Sam was in his thirties, and you know, like Noel was a bit older, Paul was in his thirties, you know, whereas, you know, um, Supergrass Man, was what a teenager was in the early 20s yeah. and that was a big difference i think so but it's it's not really important if you're this and that it's just what uh it's just it was just a journalistic thing
0: wasn't it really and simon do you will you consider yourself brit if people say I, oh, I-, I agree with what dan says really it was
1: it was a rule of it was um just a a, a phrase mm-hmm. of the rule of thumb, wasn't it really we were british and we were popular, <laughs> but no, it's right. It's because we're guitar oriented bands from the uh, from the mid 90s, so you know, I don't, I don't mind. Personally, I thought we were more of a folk rock band,
0: doesn't sound as good though, does it?
1: No, no, it doesn't, does it? No, it's not as good for headlines either. No, I mean, I guess hard. the first Britpop band probably was Suede. Whether yes, they um, would consider themselves Britpop or not, I don't know. I must ask their drummer. Well, there was that
2: documentary that was a nonsense, wasn't it? That was on recently with Brett Anson saying, we were Britpop, we started. It was just absurd, the whole programme was... Well, I
1: think they probably did. They, You remember, they were they were first out the blocks, weren't they? They were about 92. I think Britpop really was sort of kind of blur and pulp, really, but I don't well, think it really it matters, a, it to be honest. Sunday,
2: Sunday, I think, is probably the first ever real... Brit pop song you can go to. And Some just, people
0: talk about pop scene being the first one. Maybe pop scene. Yeah, I'll go Sunday Sunday first. Yeah, I prefer Sunday Sunday to pop scene. I've got to say. As, a, as, a, as, a, as of a it, I don't
1: even, I don't know what you two are talking
0: about. <laughs> a couple of early Blur songs. <laughs> I Wait, uh, uh,
2: sad, the ironic thing to me, oh <laughs> Brett c- claims they were Brit pop and they weren't, and then denies it when they were. You know, coming up to me was a a very Britpop pop sounding record. I'm very good for it. Uh, but they wanted to be on the outside of it all as much as anything because of the three way relationship between him, Justine and, and Damon. And, and that was, you know, antagonism is, is, is a cause for trying to redefine things, I think, because, you know, I've, I've spoken to Brett and he won't say two words or three words. He won't say the word blur and he won't say the word Damon Albarn. Yeah. You know, and that says a lot, really. And, but, you know, I, I liked a lot of what Suede were do in the beginning, but that wasn't the Britpop sound. And, and and I don't think in the way that they think they were talking about their working-class life on the street it wasn't really how I viewed their lyrics, as much as Brett says it was. Yeah. And I know he is of that, but it's not how it came across to me. But it did with Blur. Yeah.
1: used to call him Bertie Bowie.
0: That needs an explanation.
1: It doesn't really, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have, to, I'll have to talk to, I, I bump into Simon Gilbert, the drummer occasionally, he, he, in, in the Waitrose in Stratford-upon-Avon, so I, I must ask him about these matters.
0: Um, so, But Dan, you Daniel, you know what you're talking about here, because you've written books that might well be of interest to our audience. You you wrote a book called, uh, was it Don't Look Back in Anger?
2: Yeah, which was The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia, and, and part of that was that, again, that this idea that, Cool Britannia is a phrase has been adopted by successive generations and has come to mean everything and nothing in the same way as Britpop as a phrase has, I think. And I just wanted to define what Cool Britannia was as something separate from just what was happening musically in the 90s. So, you know, I then um, which, you know, that, that whole the, the great thing about the 90s was the absolute explosion of culture. And that happened with the young British artists in contemporary art and filmmakers, Danny Boyle and the authors like Irvin Welsh. And it was happening in politics with New Labour and Tony Blair and football and the, and what happened in Euro 96 and across everything. There was this incredible, incredible explosion. And and music's a part of that. And so, yeah, that book was me meeting all of those people, you know, Damon Jarvis, Brett Noel, Tony Blair. Tony uh, John Major, you know Tracy Emin, everybody who was part of it. I spoke to them all, and then and then uh, put that all into a narrative. And uh, yeah, it's done very
0: well for itself. So. How did you get to speak to Tony Blair?
2: Uh, I asked him.
0: Did you uh, <laughs> did you do it with a brown paper <laughs> bag?
2: Literally, I just asked, "Can I?" You know, that's just that's <laughs> the first thing, and. Uh, um, I, I thought it was a bit cheeky, to be honest, at first, because I thought, he, why would he be interested in something as trivial as music yeah. when he uh, got a global corporation and is trying to man-manage the Middle East? But um, but at the same time, I thought that if he didn't want to talk about what he did when the country loved him, and, and that's something I say very precisely, because people did love Tony Blair in the 90s, and that, and that often gets forgotten post-Iraq, Um if, he, if, if that didn't mean anything to, to him, the way that New Labour became elected, then a lot of that was to do with his love of music and his embrace of going to things like the Q Awards and the Brit Awards and proclaiming to listen to Oasis on the way to work. And so, it, yeah, I ended up meeting him three times and he does have a great love for music. And, and, and interestingly enough, just a couple of weeks before I met him, which was around 2016, I think it was, he just met Noel and Damon independently. And he was saying that he still felt that it was really important to meet people like them because they offered a kind of a a, a barometer of where culture was at. And he felt that was important to him to know, you know, he needed a, a, an all-embracing sense of culture. And I thought that was really kind of a remarkable thing for him to be saying in the 2000s, as, as he was saying the same in the 90s.
3: She came from Greece, she had a thirst for knowledge She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College, as were I Second this time she said, I wanna live like common people. I wanna do. And drink and screw because there's nothing else
0: So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Daniel and with Simon, but that's only part one. So if you enjoyed this week, make sure to tune in next week where you can hear the second half of the interview, where they talk about their brand new book and all sorts of presents that you might like to get for Christmas, which is on the horizon. Thanks again for listening and see you on the flip side.